Welcome to Profiles. This is WFIU's program where we introduce our listeners to interesting people who visit Bloomington, movers and shakers around the community as well. I'm Annie Corrigan, so pleased to speak today with Lauren Cordain. It's my honor and pleasure to be here. And founder of the Paleo Diet, or one of the movers and shakers of the Paleo Diet. Would you call yourself a founder of the movement? Um, you know, I, I was involved with the, the idea very early on, but uh, uh, many people were involved. And, and my mentor is a fellow by the name of Boyd Eaton uh, from Emory University. And I think that he was there significantly earlier than I was. But this is a this is an idea for all of humanity, and no single person uh, came up with this, unless you want to say Charles Darwin <laughs> uh, came up with the idea of uh, evolution through natural selection. But uh, what Boyd Eaton did and what I have done and other people that have come after me, scientists, lay people as well, is we've taken the the most powerful orienting idea in all of uh, biology and medicine, which is evolution through natural selection, and we've applied it to human nutrition. And so that's kind of a, a novel idea. And uh, Boyd's paper came out in 1985 in the New England Journal of Medicine. I read it two years later and got very intrigued with the idea and essentially devoted my career to that uh, notion. And uh, met Boyd, started publishing papers with him. And I'm a professor. I just retired from a Division I research institute. And so our responsibilities are to write scientific papers to teach and to write grants. So that was really uh, the outlet for this idea was in uh, academia and and the scientific community. So for the first, I don't know, five to eight years, that's what I did. And Mm -hmm. I I continued to do that. But my wife convinced me to write a popular book in about 2000. And the book came out in 2002. And that book was called The Paleo Diet. And so I coined that term, the paleo diet, based upon Dr. Eaton's scientific paper, which was called Paleolithic Nutrition. So in that regard, maybe uh, people can trace this thing, the paleo diet, back to my first book. About 12 years ago, you've written four books since that first book. Did you have any idea that it would become the craze that it is now? Well, no, I, I really didn't. You know, I think you always are optimistic and are hopeful that when you write a book that people will be interested in it. But never in my wildest dreams could I have envisioned what it has become. It's become a, a worldwide movement and spawning hundreds of books, tens of thousands of blogs and web pages. And, you know, I can't go anywhere in this country and People, as I mentioned, don't recognize my face so much, but I couldn't walk into a CrossFit gym anywhere in the country and write my name down and yeah. not have people know me. That's it. I mean, we'll talk about the connection to the paleo diet and the CrossFit fad and just exercise in general and how those two things are connected. We'll talk about that a little later. For people who don't know the paleo diet, let me see if I can summarize it and, and help me out fill in the blanks here. It's essentially a hunter-gatherer way of eating. So we're talking meat, fish, fruits and veggies that grow naturally, and definitely no processed foods, no dairies, no legumes. Fill in the blanks for me. Well, I I think you've kind of got the basics of it, but uh, the first thing that I want to say from a scientific perspective is that none of us can eat in a manner of hunter-gatherers in our contemporary world 
so what we're really trying to do with this idea is look at the nutritional characteristics of pre-agricultural or hunter-gatherer diets and then emulate the food groups and the types of foods that they would have consumed with modern foods. Now, clearly, we have a cornucopia of foods that we can eat all year round that they couldn't. So we really can't exactly match what they were consuming. And there, there, there was no single um, Stone Age diet. And so there's a range of diets that Stone Age people ate that varied by ecologic niche, by time frame, by species. And so there's a tremendous amount of variation. But one of the, the factors that we've done with our scientific research is to look at the, the nutrient characteristics of the most representative hunter-gatherers that we can get. So we rounded up uh, data from 229 hunter-gatherer societies. We statistically analyzed it, and we determined basically what is called a bell shape or a normal statistical curve. And the point is, is that uh, when we look at modern standard American diets, is there are nutrient characteristics that fall not just one standard deviation or two, but sometimes four and five standard deviations to the right or the left of the mean. And that's really uh, what this idea is all about. And I, I think to look at the flip side of it to help with the way you've characterized it is that if we look at the total calories in the typical U.S. diet, 70% of the calories on a daily basis come from four foods. They come from refined sugars, refined grains, refined vegetable oils, and dairy products. Now, we don't eat a pile of refined sugar, a pile of <laughs> refined grains, flour, or, or drink down a cup of vegetable oils. We mix it all together. We call it a donut, a pizza, a cookie. So processed foods with those four foods are what we eat, 70% of our calories from the time we get up until the time we go to bed, from the time we're weaned until the time we die. And that's really the issue is to uh, try to increase the diversity of our diet by eliminating those foods that really were not part of our uh, evolutionary heritage and replacing them with more healthful foods. So I don't think you're going to find too many nutritionists that would say that eating more fruits and vegetables is a bad idea. I don't think you're going to find many nutritionists that would say eating uh, fresh fish and getting a lot of healthful omega-3 fatty acids is a bad idea. The controversial part of this uh, with standard uh, dietitians is that, quote-unquote, they say we're eliminating two food groups, dairy and cereal grains. But the point that I would like to make is that uh, no human being on this planet ever consumed dairy products after they were weaned simply because you can't milk wild animals. You you can't even approach a wild animal, let alone milk it. So uh, no other species drinks the, the milk of any other species. And so there are numerous health problems with drinking milk throughout your life. Uh, and uh, cereal grains were marginal foods for hunter-gatherers, and they required a lot of energy to process them and then to eat them. And then there was a time, if we go back far enough, uh, when they simply were inedible because unless you could cook them, uh, they're basically not digestible. I was doing a lot of research before our conversation. Another counter-argument I've heard is that we can't actually truly know what people millions and millions of years ago actually ate. How would you respond to those people? Well, we, we clearly weren't there to, to view uh, what they were eating, but there is archaeologic evidence, and we can go backwards in time 
all the way back to the very beginning of when humans, our genus Homo, arose, which was about two million years ago, maybe even a little bit earlier. And we have what are called smoking gun fossils in which uh, we find the remains fossilized animals that these uh, these ancient hominins or hominids uh, butchered. And so we find these sharp stone flakes and we find cut marks uh, on the bones suggesting that they were interested in cutting the flesh off the bones and eating it. We also see that they cracked open the long bones and extracted the marrow. So uh, we, we can't directly, uh, we have no absolute direct evidence, but we have as I mentioned, indirect evidence that is is pretty incontrovertible. So uh, we know that they were eating uh, animal foods, and we also have what are called isotopes in which we can look at the signatures of the types of foods that they were eating. And there's a compound called delta carbon-13. And by analyzing delta carbon-13, we can get a feel for the relative ratio of plant to animal foods in their diet. And so the best available evidence tells us that they were eating um, both plant and animal foods, so they were omnivorous. And they clearly did not have the technology to eat refined processed foods, so that's out of the equation. And they couldn't eat dairy products because they didn't have they hadn't domesticated animals. So, you know, there's there are ways to triangulate what our ancestors ate. And in rare occasions, uh, we sometimes find soft tissue of not necessarily hunter-gatherers, but like Otzi, the, the Iceman that was discovered in, in Austria years ago, frozen. We actually can find out what he was eating, but he wasn't a hunter-gatherer by looking at the stomach contents. So in rare occasions, uh, we can get that kind of information. But for the most part, we have to triangulate it through multiple means. No matter what you think about the paleo diet, it's an interesting way to think about how we eat and food in general. If you can imagine why all of your critics have so much have such a problem with paleo diet, why is it such a controversy? Well, I, you know, I don't see that it's it's necessarily a controversy. I I see that um, some people, lay people, and, and scientists who come to it for the first time, are surprised that there is a, a unifying organizational template for human diet. And and prior to Boyd Eaton's paper, we had to rely upon humans, and humans are are foible. So we we make mistakes, uh, we make errors in translating uh, data and understanding it. And, you know, (laughs) go down to the bookstore and you can see that there are charismatic individuals, you can call them Dr. Atkins or the South Beach Diet or any other physician, and they Beverly Hills grapefruit diet, they come up with these schemes and ways to eat with really not a whole lot of good evidence. And what I've done and other scientists and anthropologists, and believe me, this isn't just me. There are thousands of people that are involved in this concept. What we've done is we've taken the most powerful ideas I mentioned in all of biology and medicine, which is evolution through natural selection, and we used it as an organizational template to give us insight into what our species traditionally consumed. And so in a similar manner, um, when if you were a zookeeper at the San Diego Zoo or San Diego Zoo Park, uh, they don't just randomly feed their animals chow in order for them to reproduce and to be healthy. They determine what the animal ate in its native ecologic niche, and they try to recreate that. And so 
Uh, many species won't eat anything except for the specific types of plants in animal foods that they find in their environment. So, for instance, um, you look at panda bears, it's, they have a very narrow range of foods that they'll consume. And so the zoos that have uh, panda bears in their possession, they have to feed them this narrow range of plant food. And so they have to either grow it or import it from China. So in the same manner, uh, the ultimate reason for that, answer the why question in biology, you always have to invoke evolution. So why do pandas only eat those foods? Because that is the ecologic niche in which they evolved, and they do quite well. And in a similar manner, that's what humans do. So to critics of this idea, uh, what I would say is give me a, a plausible alternative uh, explanation of why any mammal or any creature has uh, specific nutritional needs. And you have to invoke the evolutionary explanation. So what we did, I didn't invent this diet. Boyd Eaton didn't invent it. We simply uncovered what was pre-existing. And so uh, that's what we have done, and that's what's unique about this. When I'm long gone, when I'm dead, this won't go away. It's like after Darwin died, his ideas will stay with us forever because he got it right. And so uh, this is an application of Darwinian medicine to something that we all have to do on a daily basis. When I'm hearing you talk about what pandas eat and their connection to the food that is grown in the place where they live, it's making me think about the local food movement. You also talk about uh, eating grass-fed beef. That's one of the parts of the paleo diet. Other connections that we can draw to the, the local food movement? Foraging, obviously, is a connection. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good thing to say is that uh, when we look at the way we produce the standard American diet, is it is not a sustainable-type uh, diet. It requires petroleum, fertilizers, and importing foods from far-off places and, and what have you. So it is uh, consistent with the sustainability movement in that um, locally produced fresh fruits and vegetables take less of the, the planet's resource to get to the people that want to eat them. You don't have to have a middleman, whereas processed foods, you don't even know what you're getting. You might be getting corn from the Midwest and sugar from sugar beets in whoever knows where they were grown, cardboard from uh, you know the Pacific Northwest and and ink from someplace else, and it all has to come together to produce processed foods, whereas uh, the sustainability uh, concept is let's grow things locally, sell them locally, let's try to eliminate middlemen and and deal directly with the producers uh, to the consumers. And so paleo is, is completely on board with that idea, as well as you mentioned grass-produced uh, meats, they're not only are they healthier for us, they take up less of the resources that uh, are required to bring meat and fish to the consumer. At the same time, we have to admit that grass-fed beef is a very small part of the market. A diet that is so heavy on meat consumption, many would say, is just not sustainable as we're dealing with the effects of climate change as the growing population around the world is becoming increasingly urbanized. Talk about the sustainability of eating meat so much. Well, first off is that it doesn't have to be heavy in eating meat. There are a variety of versions of, of what paleo is and isn't. And as I mentioned from the onset, we as a species, uh, we can go from groups like the Inuit in the very far north who ate as much as 95 to 97% of their calories as, as animal food 
and we can go to groups in Botswana, uh, the Ikung, that are consuming as little as 35, maybe 25, 35% as animal food. So there's a, a, a wide range in which uh, our species can adapt to and do quite healthy. What we can't do healthily is to not eat meat at all. We have a vitamin B12 requirement. We have at least a half dozen other nutrients that you will become deficient in if you stop eating meat. So we're a, a very bright species, and we can use our technology to our advantage and produce uh, animal foods locally sustainable and uh, not drain the planet's resources. Draining the planet's resources are the way we produce meat now in feedlots in the Midwest. That's a really bad idea. In certain places of the world, people raise chickens in their yards, and they feed chickens the waste from foods that they're not eating. Um, you can raise fish in ponds locally and uh, have it be very sustainable. So I think if the idea is to continue to have larger and larger human populations on this planet, which I think probably is a pretty bad idea. I think we probably uh, were at 7.5 billion right now and projected growth, what, 20 billion in the next 100 years or who knows how many. I think that we need to have a management plan for the, the planet. I couldn't imagine starting a business and just saying it's going to be unlimited growth forever. That's not a very good idea. So it's ironic that um, many of the people on the planet can no longer afford the diet to which our species is genetically adapted, and that's a, an omnivorous diet of both meat and, and vegetable foods. You said it. This is a. It seems like a very expensive diet. Is this a diet for the rich? You know, I, I think it's a diet. As I mentioned, it's ironic that uh, probably two thirds of the the people on the planet simply cannot eat animal based foods on a regular basis. So we walk down a, a path of absolute dependence on cereal grains, and it's a path for which we can't turn back. Now, that's looking at it globally. In the United States, here in Indiana, you're not suffering from diseases of underconsumption. You're suffering from diseases of overconsumption. Seventy percent of the U.S. adult population is overweight or obese. Seventy percent, by the time they get to their third decade, has one or more symptoms of type 2 diabetes. Most people, except if we divide the U.S. population into the haves and the have-nots, most people in the United States can eat pretty much what they want to eat. Food, the cost of food is not a huge issue here. So we have enormous health care costs that absolutely outweigh anything that we're paying for food. And so the government is partially responsible. And when I say the government, I don't say any one entity or any one person. It's not a deliberate effect, but we subsidize corn now, and corn is one of the problems. Corn is how we produce high fructose corn syrup, and I don't think you're going to get anybody on this show to tell you that eating high fructose corn syrup is a good idea. Uh, that's called soda pop. That's how we sweeten soda pop. We put it into cakes and breads and cookies and, and everything else. How we fatten our cows is typically with corn. And so we take a, a healthy grass-produced animal and we fatten it up in a feedlot. We take it from seven months to 14 months and produce an obese, overweight animal that has a fatty acid profile that is not just killing the animal. It's bad for us when we eat it. So 
We don't need to subsidize corn. We, what we should be subsidizing are produce farmers and grass-produced meat farmers and subsidizing people that produce foods locally. So there are mechanisms and ways in which um, we collectively, as a group of people, can promote healthy eating. And it's a lot like uh, you know, what was done uh, years ago with items that adversely affected our health that the government kind of got involved in. When you say things like that, it sounds like every other food activist I talk to, eat fewer processed foods, eat more whole foods, let's focus on the local, let's stop giving subsidies to big commodity farmers. Really, when we get down to this whole food issue, is everyone on the same page? No. My mother, who passed away a number of years ago, she said there's three things you don't want to talk about at the dinner table. One is politics, two is religion, and the third is food. And so um, everybody, I think, has – because we all have ideas about all of that and we all have to eat on a daily basis. We eat for a variety of reasons. Um, Many people eat for just eating to fill themselves up. They don't give a a second thought to health and nutrition. They're unaware of it. Some people eat for behavioral issues. Many of us do. You know, you're depressed, you're this, you're that, whatever. You eat for solace. So there's a variety of reasons that people – consume the type of diets they do. Some people consume vegetarian, vegan diets because of their issues about not wanting to uh, to protect animals. And I, and I respect everybody's belief. I'm not here to dogmatically tell anybody what they should or should not eat. I'm just saying that um, if you want to put the odds on your side and eat a, the, a diet that will Um, help to prevent the chronic diseases that 70% of us suffer, including obesity, overweight, type 2 diabetes, even to acne, we now realize is a disease of insulin resistance. And and that work came out of our laboratories. So, um, you know, if you want to live with acne and eat your Twinkies and donuts, and you know that uh, that's what's causing it or is underlying it, that's fine. I think what we need to do is to provide our population with the information, and then they need to make those decisions for themselves. And we should always let the data speak for itself. We should always let people evaluate the data and not have either scientists or charismatic individuals force anything on anybody just to provide them with the information, and then they can logically make the decisions that they want to do. This is WFIU's Profiles. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Cordain. He's the author of five books and one of the scientists behind the paleo diet. So that's what we're talking about today is how we eat and uh, what this whole paleo diet thing is all about. Go all the way back to the very beginning of this research. Were you a foodie from the beginning or did you come to this from a different angle? Well, I'm 63 years old and the word foodie didn't exist when we started doing this. My mother... uh, was always interested in diet and health, but she was born in 1916. And so uh, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have TV, we didn't have any of that. So she kind of instilled that interest in me, and she always tried to put uh, vegetables on the table in the evening. And, uh, you know, we had traditional dinners that people ate in the 50s and 60s, uh, chicken on Sunday and pot roast and lamb. And so we had a lot of real food around our house. And uh, you're not old enough to realize that uh, the 
absolute plethora of processed foods that is available now simply didn't exist. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Nevada, Carson City, and there was absolutely no fast food in the town. We had a couple of, I don't know, soda shops, but we didn't have any McDonald's, Burger King's, pizza deal. When I went as a freshman in the city of Reno, which is a pretty good-sized city, there was one pizza place in the entire town. If you walk through the center aisles of most major supermarkets now, the number of processed foods is absolutely staggering. I don't even know how many processed breakfast cereals are made or even how many candy bars there are. It's just, it's absolutely unbelievable. And as a youth, uh, you know, there was Kellogg's Corn Flakes and Wheaties and a few things like that, but we didn't have nearly the proliferation of those foods that we had. Also, high fructose corn syrup simply did not even exist until uh, the early 80s. So that wasn't part of the food chain that I grew up with. So the point is, to answer your question, is that uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a quote-unquote foodie. I would say that uh, uh, I've always been interested in diet and health. I was a collegiate athlete in my 20s and a high school athlete. And so uh, I had recognized at that point that diet did influence athletic performance. And in the day, we didn't really know what we should be eating. We were just trying to eat a little bit of this and that because we didn't really have a whole lot of good science. The, the scientific journal articles, the major epidemiologic studies were decades in the future. So the thinking was in uh, the late 60s and early 70s that the best way to eat was a vegetarian, vegan, plant-based type diet and that uh, you should avoid red meat whenever possible. So that was the thought that kind of prevailed that era and that was the type of a diet that uh, I tried to adhere to for much of my early life. And what I found is that uh, whenever I... uh, gave up meat and animal foods and ate brown rice and beans and legumes and and potatoes and all that, I felt awful. I had gas. um, I was a runner. I continually got upper respiratory illnesses and GI tract problems. And, you know, we now have the science to know why those types of diets tend to promote those kinds of illnesses in athletes. So my other interest, how I got involved in this was not just through my mother and athletic performance, was my father. My father was always interested in uh, Native American Indians, and so uh, he kind of instilled in me um, a love for studying uh, non-Westernized people. And so as a kid growing up, we had all those lifetime booklets of human evolution, and he had books on Indians. And so I've always been, uh, you know, very much thrilled and interested in that. And Uh, One of the reasons why I'm here uh, now at uh, Indiana University is one of my colleagues is a professor in the anthro department. We met uh, a decade ago, and I told her when I came in for this visit is that uh, my favorite class as an undergraduate was Anthro 101, and I said I should have uh, continued on in that vein because uh, that's my real passion is anthropology and nutrition, and so uh, myself and Boyd Eaton and, and and many other scientists have kind of developed this cross-disciplinary idea is that let's take uh, these two disciplines as well as genetics and, and other scientific disciplines and let's apply them to the most fundamental thing that we all do every single day and that is to eat. 
let's talk about exercise. You mentioned that you were an athlete. Uh, now you can't think of CrossFit, the CrossFit fad, without thinking of the paleo diet. Uh, whether you're, you know, it's connected in sort of a humorous way, or if people in CrossFit are actually really invested in eating a paleo diet. Which came first, I guess, your personal connection to paleo and the exercise movement, or did the CrossFit people pick it up after the books were published? Can you talk about that? Well, as I mentioned, um, Boyd Eaton's paper was published in 1985 in the New England Journal of Medicine. I read it in 1987, and I don't believe – and then I, I started studying this. It became my life's work, my passion, so starting in about 87 – and I don't even know when the first CrossFit gym came about, but I would imagine it was probably no earlier than, what, 2003 or four or something in there, maybe two. I don't know. You could go online and find out. So I would say that this idea uh, predated CrossFit by a decade or more. What do you think about this connection with CrossFit? Well, I guess you can't kick a gift horse in the mouth, can you? <laughs> You've got a popular book on paleo diet. I, you know, I think that I, I've spoken at CrossFit gyms, and and they're very uh, generous and I think sincere people. That have the interest they have in mind is improving human health through exercise and diet. And uh, exercise and diet are, are like politics and religion. Everybody has a little bit different idea on it. So. You know, I can't really comment directly um, on CrossFit because I haven't studied it. I, I know people that are involved in it, but uh, I think that any exercise that you can get is better than no exercise. If you look at the the percentage of the people in the United States that don't do any exercise whatsoever, it's staggering. So uh, if you can get sedentary people to do anything, uh, that's a really good idea. And if you can get them to do a little bit more, that's a better idea. Some personal questions before we get you on your way. Do you do the paleo diet yourself? Of course. Now, you know, when I wrote the very first book, I started writing it in 2000 and I finished in 2002. It was published in January of 2002. As I was writing it, uh, my wife was saying, well, Lauren, you've got to make this a doable uh, type. And it really isn't a diet. It's a lifetime program of nutrition to help maximize health and minimize the incidence of chronic disease. And so one of the things Lori said was you have to make it something that people can do. And so we kind of worked together, worked up what we call the 85-15 principle, meaning that if you are compliant 85% of the time with a diet and non-compliant 15% of the time, uh, most people achieve significant improvements in health. People that are really sick, that have autoimmune disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, heart disease, and what have you, or severely overweight or obese, uh, those folks w can do better by being more compliant, 90-10, 95-5. So, of course I do it. And um, now when I'm traveling and on the road and eating in the wonderful facilities here in restaurants, I, it's difficult to be entirely compliant. One of the elements that... Uh, you know, this movement has spawned in Medusa head of, of, of other ideas of what is and is not paleo. And so many people believe that uh, salt or sea salt is, is part of the paleo diet. And it, I've said that it never was. And so one of the hardest things to do when you're on the road in airplanes and whatever is they put salt in virtually all processed foods. And so 
Uh, when I eat at home, we don't put processed or we don't put salt in our food. So that's how you can take food that really doesn't taste very good at all and make it kind of tasty is to put a lot of salt and spice in it. So that's usually a tip-off, salt, spice, sugar. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I've been pretty much compliant, as has my wife. I, we had to laugh uh, before I'd written any of these books and just was getting to know Boyd Eaton. We actually started doing it before we had children, and we were laughing is that there was the only people on, on the planet that were eating in this manner in 19... 90 or 89 were the remaining hunter-gatherers and my wife and me. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm absolutely honored and flattered to know that uh, so many people have you know, decided that this is a healthful way to eat. And it's not just anecdotal evidence from people saying that this is a healthful way to eat. We now have a close to 20 randomized controlled trials, scientific studies showing that this this type of way of eating outperforms the Mediterranean diet. It outperforms the My Plate, the USDA My Plate diet. It outperforms type two diabetic diets, and the, the the factors that are used to evaluate it are blood pressure, weight loss, uh, inflammatory markers, control of uh, blood sugar, insulin levels. So it's proving out to be for the the doubting Thomases. Um, that you spoke about earlier is that the currency of, of science is experimental evidence. And you can talk about anecdotal evidence all you want, but the experimental evidence is now showing of the 16 to 18 trials, I only know of one which uh, has been criticized because it was the experimental design was, was atrocious. They've all shown uh, this type of, of way of eating to, to outperform anything else that um, people are suggesting. So the proof is in the pudding, and I'm 64 years old. As I mentioned, this won't go away, and it won't go away in the scientific community because there will be people, the doubting Thomases, that want to disprove it and say, this doesn't work, and it's going to cause your blood cholesterol to elevate. You're going to get fatter. It's not sustainable, blah, 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 blah. And so we're going to have... Uh, much more scientific confirmation of this idea in the ensuing years. Let's speak directly to IU students, maybe the 18 or 19-year-olds who are on their own for the very first time eating in cafeterias for the most part. Give them some paleo principles to think about as they're wandering around the cafeteria collecting their dinner. Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm staying over here at the IU hotel, and uh, I've had a few meals over there, and I think it's possible to to eat not 100% paleo, but to be 85-15, so that's easy to do. And so for breakfast this morning, they had some scrambled eggs and a banana. So I had fresh fruit and eggs for breakfast. That's a good breakfast. Your blood sugar doesn't rise, your insulin doesn't rise, and that's something that you, as a student you want to do, is if you decide to have Frosty Flakes cereal and a donut and uh, soda pop for breakfast, your blood sugar is going to go through the roof. And then about an hour later, because insulin follows what blood glucose does, your blood glucose is going to drop. And by 10 o'clock, you're going to feel hungry again. And so that freshman 15, uh, by eating those quote unquote tasty sugary foods, uh, really works against you. And so 
I, I think that people should try to get a little bit of fish or eggs or meat at you know each and every one of their meals because it helps to normalize blood glucose and blood insulin. And I'm not saying you have to have a meat-heavy diet. I've never said that. But you can certainly uh, eat a little bit of egg for breakfast. Uh, you can certainly have a salad for lunch. And that's exactly what I had yesterday is I had a nice vegetable salad with a, a dollop of tuna fish on the top of it. So that's pretty sustainable, and it's not meat-heavy. So that was my lunch yesterday and my dinner. Uh, I had a, a nice uh, Caesar salad without any croutons and a little bit of broiled salmon on top of it and a glass of wine. So that was dinner, and that was my day. Does that sound meat-heavy to you? Not especially. So that is a sustainable type of a diet that is, you know, we can do that. We can do that in the inner city. We can provide kids with tuna fish. We can provide them with apples. We can provide them with eggs. We can provide them with bananas. Uh, we just need to get that mindset in our head that we don't have to have wheat and grains at every meal. We don't have a, a wheat requirement. Every known nutrient that humans need is found in other foods. As a matter of fact, the nutrient density of your diet will increase if you take wheat out of it because wheat is one of the nutritional lightweights for the 13 vitamins and minerals most lacking in the U.S. diet. So one of the best things you can do is to severely reduce the wheat in your diet and increase the fruits and vegetables. A good idea is instead of eating a sandwich, a tuna fish sandwich for lunch, is to eat a tuna fish salad. Sounds tasty to me. We're, <laughs> we're still in breakfast time, though. I want to go back okay. to breakfast. Are you a coffee drinker? No, I'm not. I've never drank coffee in my entire life. But that's not to say that you can't do it. I don't think that there are a huge amount of issues one thing that can get a little bit crazy is people that go overboard on the coffee thing is that they drink, you know, four, six, eight cups of coffee all day long, and they're getting a huge caffeine dose, which probably is not a good idea. But if somebody wants a cup of coffee with breakfast, I don't see that as a problem. And I don't see having a glass of wine with dinner as a problem either. Uh, and it kind of invokes the eighty-five fifteen rule. We don't live in the Paleolithic or Stone Age. We live in the 21st century. And so we need to adapt the foods that we're culturally used to, to conceptually the types of nutrients that historically were found in our ancestral diet. Dr. Lauren Cordain has been our guest on Profiles today. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. One last question. I want you to talk about one of the last research projects you did before you retired this past December about the paleo diet treating autoimmune diseases? That's right. And uh, one of the papers that I published, oh, I want to say about a decade or so ago, is that we explored the relationship between certain foods in our diet and the incidence of autoimmune disease. We were specifically interested in rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is a an autoimmune disease in which the immune system actually attacks tissue in the joints because the immune system thinks or believes that that is a, a foreign tissue. It does, it, 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 it's unable to recognize that as being our own body. And so 10 years ago, autoimmune disease was a complete black box in the scientific community except for one, which was celiac disease, and we knew that wheat caused celiac disease. All the other autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, Hashimoto's disease of the thyroid, 
all of those were complete black boxes. Well, we're starting to get a better handle on what's causing them. And way back in 2002, when I wrote that paper, uh, we suggested that wheat, legumes, beans cause a leaky gut. And so at the time, that was an absolutely revolutionary idea. Now, fast forward uh, almost a decade, two years ago, Alessio Fasano, the major celiac researcher at the University of Maryland, suggested the same thing. He said that he thought that the environmental trigger in genetically susceptible individuals that elicited not just one autoimmune disease, but perhaps most or maybe all autoimmune disease was a leaky gut. So that's another good reason to get wheat out of your diet because we know that wheat contains at least three elements that promote a leaky gut. Uh, the storage protein in wheat is called gluten. It also contains a compound called wheat germaglutinin, both of which are known in humans and experimental animals to increase intestinal permeability. We know that uh, uh, legumes and beans do the same thing, but through another mechanism. They contain a compound called saponins. And I hate to tell some of your listeners this, but uh, spicy chilies also contain compounds called capsaicins that also increase intestinal permeability. So big deal. Ten years ago, nobody worried about it. Now, uh, one of the emerging ideas in human biology and medicine is that our gut biome, the flora that is found in our intestinal tract has a huge impact upon our health and well-being. So we're just getting a handle on it now that uh, probably uh, if you're genetically susceptible, having a leaky gut is not a very good idea. And so by uh, reducing or eliminating foods which increase intestinal permeability, they seem to be therapeutic. And so this is the last song during the swan song of my career that I've worked on with a couple of three or four graduate students. And we just completed a, a large, it wasn't an experimental study, it was uh, an observational study. And the observational study actually suggested that by consuming a paleo diet, people could improve their health. One of the interesting outcomes of this observational study uh, was that we had uh, close to 100 people with autoimmune disease and they, we have their medical records before they adopted paleo and then after they had adopted paleo, and we have some records in between. And the, the most amazing um, piece of data that came out of this was we had 10 people with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And it can be argued that maybe Crohn's disease is not necessarily autoimmune in nature, but many people believe that it is. All 10 of those people regardless of whether it's autoimmune or not, all 10 people with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's came into a complete remission and did not stop taking medication after the diet. So uh, there's a number of elements in uh, uh, this way of eating that it's not just haphazard. Uh, there are elements in, in milk that seem to increase intestinal permeability, elements in legumes, elements in cereal grains that increase intestinal permeability. So by adopting this diet, there's absolutely no nutritional risks. You're going to be more uh, nutritionally dense than you were by eating those foods. So there's absolutely no risks, and the potential benefits are great. And as you said, this conversation is going to go on for generations, likely, with scientists doing more and more tests about this and people continuing to eat this way. Anything you want to add before we end? No, I think you did a great job, and thanks uh, 
for having me, and it's been a real honor to come to your incredibly beautiful campus and uh, meet with students and faculty. Thank you very much. Dr. Lauren Cordain is the author of five books about the paleo diet. We are pleased to welcome him to the Indiana University campus. Thanks for coming in. Sure, you bet.